Joan Didion was a literary great. Works including Slouching Towards Bethlehem and The White Album helped change the shape of journalism. And on the next Selected Shorts, we hear highlights from each. Stay tuned as we celebrate the life and work of the great Joan Didion. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Joan Didion was beloved by generations of readers. She wrote novels and screenplays, as well as memoirs and essays that occupy a singular place in the cultural imagination. Sophisticated, knowing, a writer with a style and a voice that you could recognize anywhere— Taking up the torch of what was called new journalism, she placed herself squarely in her reportage. She was a distant, cool-eyed observer searching for order in a world determined to fall apart. Didion spoke to the obvious but often ignored elements underpinning American culture, including race and class, while candidly sharing her own life and thinking. Her writing was pithy, philosophical, piquant, seemingly casual, yet full of incisive revelation. When Didion died in 2021, her star was undimmed. You never know which writers will continue to be read after they're gone, but Didion's influence only seems to expand over time. I think it's still expanding. In this hour, essays that reveal the two sides of Joan Didion. One, the adult Didion, at the edge of a nervous breakdown, reporting from California in the late 60s. And the other, a youthful Didion, full of hope and life, living in New York and discovering how everything in her life is beginning to change. Didion's essay, The White Album, famously begins with the line, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Here, these stories are jarring visions of the late 60s, distilled in crisp, propulsive sentences. To inhabit Didion's complex world, we have an actor best known for her longtime role on the series L.A. Law, this is Jill Eikenberry performing an excerpt from Joan Didion's The White Album. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of exody, or the naked woman is an exhibitionist, and it would be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin, or is about to register a political protest, or is about to be, the Aristophanic view, snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria which is our actual experience. Or at least we do for a while. I'm talking here about a time when I began to doubt the premises of all the stories I had ever told myself. A common condition, but one I found troubling. 
I suppose this period began around 1966 and continued until 1971. During those five years, I appeared, on the face of it, a competent enough member of some community or another, a signer of contracts and air travel cards, a citizen. I wrote a couple of times a month for one magazine or another, published two books, worked on several motion pictures, participated in the paranoia of the time, in the raising of a small child, and in the entertainment of large numbers of people passing through my house made gingham curtains for spare bedrooms, remembered to ask agents if any reduction of points would be pari passu with the financing studio, put lentils to soak on Saturday night for lentil soup on Sunday, made quarterly FICA payments, and renewed my driver's license on time, missing on the written examination only the question about the financial responsibility of California drivers. It was a time of my life when I was frequently named. I was named godmother to children. I was named lecturer and panelist, colloquist and conferee. I was even named in 1968 a Los Angeles Times Woman of the Year, along with Mrs. Ronald Reagan, the Olympic swimmer Debbie Meyer, and 10 other California women who seemed to keep in touch and do good works. I did no good works but I tried to keep in touch. <laughs> I was responsible. I recognized my name when I saw it. This was an adequate enough performance as improvisations go. The only problem was that my entire education, everything I had ever been told or had told myself, insisted that the production was never meant to be improvised. I was supposed to have a script and had mislaid it. I was supposed to hear cues and no longer did. I was meant to know the plot, but all I knew was what I saw. Flash pictures in variable sequence, images with no meaning beyond their temporary arrangement. Not a movie, but a cutting room experience. In what would probably be the middle of my life, I wanted still to believe in the narrative, and in the narrative's intelligibility. During this period, I spent what were for me the usual proportions of time in Los Angeles and New York and Sacramento. I spent what seemed to many people I knew an eccentric amount of time in Honolulu, the particular aspect of which lent me the illusion that I could any minute order from room service a revisionist theory of my own history garnished with a Vanda orchid. I watched Robert Kennedy's funeral on a veranda at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Honolulu, and also the first reports from Milai. I read all of George Orwell on the Royal Hawaiian beach, and I also read in the papers that came one day late from the mainland the story of Betty Lansdowne Fouquet, a 26-year-old woman with faded blonde hair who put her five-year-old daughter out to die on the center divider of Interstate 5, some miles south of the last Bakersfield exit. The child, whose fingers had to be pried loose from the cyclone fence when she was rescued 12 hours later by the California Highway Patrol, reported that she had run after the car carrying her mother and stepfather and brother and sister for a long time. Certain of these images did not fit into any narrative I knew. In June of this year, patient experienced an attack of vertigo, nausea, and a feeling that she was going to pass out. 
A thorough medical evaluation elicited no positive findings and she was placed on Elevil, 20 milligrams TID. The Rorschach record is interpreted as describing a personality in process of deterioration with abundant signs of failing defenses and increasing inability of the ego to mediate the world of reality and to cope with normal stress. It is as though she feels deeply that all human effort is foredoomed to failure. The patient to whom this psychiatric report refers is me. <laughs> By way of comment, I offer only that an attack of vertigo and nausea does not now seem to me an inappropriate response to the summer of 1968. <laughs> it was six, seven o'clock of an early spring evening in 1968, and I was sitting on the cold vinyl floor of a sound studio on Sunset Boulevard watching a band called The Doors record a rhythm track. On the whole, my attention was only minimally engaged by the preoccupations of rock and roll bands. I had already heard about acid as a transitional stage and also about the Maharishi and even about universal love and after a while it all sounded like marmalade skies to me. But the doors were different. The doors interested me. The doors seemed unconvinced that love was brotherhood in the Kama Sutra. The Doors music insisted that love was sex, and sex was death, and therein lay salvation. The Doors were the Norman Mailers of the top 40. <laughs> On this evening in 1968, they were gathered together in uneasy symbiosis to make their third album, and the studio was too cold, and the lights were too bright, and there were masses of wires and banks of the ominous, blinking electronic circuitry with which musicians live so easily. There were three of the four doors. There was a bass player borrowed from a band called Clearlight. There were the producer and the engineer and the road manager and a couple of girls and a Siberian husky named Nikki with one gray eye and one gold. There were paper bags half filled with hard boiled eggs and chicken livers and cheeseburgers and empty bottles of apple juice and California rose. There was everything and everybody the doors needed to cut the rest of this third album except one thing, the fourth door. The lead singer, Jim Morrison, a 24-year-old graduate of UCLA who wore black vinyl pants and no underwear and tended to suggest some range of the possible just beyond a suicide pact. It was Morrison who had described the Doors as erotic politicians. It was Morrison who had defined the group's interests as anything about revolt, disorder, chaos, about activity that appears to have no meaning. It was Morrison who got arrested in Miami in December of 1967 for giving an indecent performance. It was Morrison who wrote most of the Doors lyrics, the peculiar character of which was to reflect either an ambiguous paranoia or a quite unambiguous insistence upon the love-death as the ultimate high. And it was Morrison who was missing. It was Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger and John Densmore who made the doors sound the way they sounded. And maybe it was Manzarek and Krieger and Densmore who made 17 out of 20 interviewees on American Bandstand prefer the doors over all other bands. But it was Morrison who got up there in his black vinyl pants with no underwear and projected the idea. And it was Morrison they were waiting for now. It was a long while later, Morrison arrived. He had on his black vinyl pants, and he sat down on a leather couch in front of the four big blank speakers, and he closed his eyes. 
The curious aspect of Morrison's arrival was this, no one acknowledged it. Bobby Krieger continued working out a guitar passage, John Densmore tuned his drums, Manzarek sat at the control console and twirled a corkscrew and let a girl rub his shoulders. The girl did not look at Morrison, although he was in her direct line of sight. An hour or so passed, and still no one had spoken to Morrison. Then Morrison spoke to Manzarek. He spoke almost in a whisper, as if he were wrestling the words from behind some disabling aphasia. It's an hour to West Covina, he said. I was thinking maybe we should spend the night out there after we play. Manzarek put down the corkscrew. Why, he said. Instead of coming back. Manzarek shrugged. We were planning to come back. Well, I was thinking we could rehearse out there. Manzarek said nothing. We could get in a rehearsal. There's a Holiday Inn next door. We could do that, Manzarek said, or we could rehearse Sunday in town. I guess so, Morrison paused. Will the place be ready to rehearse Sunday? Manzarek looked at him for a while. No, he said then. I counted the control knobs on the electronic console. There were 76. I was unsure in whose favor the dialogue had been resolved, or if it had been resolved at all. Robbie Krieger picked at his guitar and said that he needed a fuzz box. The producer suggested that he borrow one from Buffalo Springfield, who were recording in the next studio. Krieger shrugged. Morrison sat down again on the leather couch and leaned back. He lit a match. He studied the flame a while and then very slowly, very deliberately, lowered it to the fly of his black vinyl pants. Manzarek watched him. The girl who was rubbing Manzarek's shoulders did not look at anyone. There was a sense that no one was going to leave the room, ever. <laughs> it would be some weeks before the Doors finished recording this album. I did not see it through. Someone once brought Janis Joplin to a party at the house on Franklin Avenue. She had just done a concert and she wanted brandy and Benedictine in a water tumbler. Music people never wanted ordinary drinks. They wanted sake or champagne cocktails or tequila neat. Spending time with music people was confusing and required a more fluid and ultimately a more passive approach than I ever acquired. In the first place, time was never of the essence. We would have dinner at 9 unless we had it at 11.30. Or we could order in later. We would go down to USC to see the living theater if the limo came at the very moment when no one had just made a drink or a cigarette or an arrangement to meet ultraviolet at the Montecito. In any case, David Hockney was coming by. In any case, ultraviolet was not at the Montecito. In any case, we would go down to USC and see the living theater tonight, or we would see the living theater another night in New York or Prague. First, we wanted sushi for 20, steamed clams, vegetable vindaloo, and many rum drinks with gardenias for our hair. First, we wanted a table for 12, 14 at the most, although there might be six more, or eight more, or 11 more. There would never be one or two more, because music people did not travel in groups of one or two. John and Michelle Phillips, on their way to the hospital for the birth of their daughter, China, had the limo detour into Hollywood in order to pick up a friend, Anne Marshall. This incident, which I often embroider in my mind to include an imaginary second detour to the luau for gardenias, exactly describes the music business to me. 
Around 5 o'clock on the morning of October 28, 1967, in the desolate district between San Francisco Bay and the Oakland estuary that the Oakland police call Beat 101A, a 25-year-old black militant named Huey P. Newton was stopped and questioned by a white police officer named John Frey, Jr. An hour later, Huey Newton was under arrest at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, where he had gone for emergency treatment of a gunshot wound in his stomach. And a few weeks later, he was indicted by the Alameda County Grand Jury on charges of murdering John Frey, wounding another officer, and kidnapping a bystander. In the spring of 1968, when Huey Newton was awaiting trial, I went to see him in the Alameda County Jail. I suppose I went because I was interested in the alchemy of issues. For an issue is what Huey Newton had by then become. To understand how that had happened, you must first consider Huey Newton, who he was. He came from an Oakland family, and for a while he went to Merritt College. In October of 1966, he and a friend named Bobby Seale organized what they called the Black Panther Party. They borrowed the name from the emblem used by the Freedom Party in Lowndes County, Alabama. And from the beginning, they defined themselves as a revolutionary political group. The Oakland police knew the Panthers and had a list of the 20 or so Panther cars. I'm telling you neither that Huey Newton killed John Frey nor that Huey Newton did not kill John Frey. For in the context of revolutionary politics, Huey Newton's guilt or innocence was irrelevant. I am telling you only how Huey Newton happened to be in the Alameda County Jail and why rallies were held in his name, demonstrations organized whenever he appeared in court. Let's spring Huey, the buttons read, 50 cents each. And here and there on the courthouse steps among the Panthers with their berets and sunglasses, the chants would go up. Get your M31, because baby, we're going to have some fun. Boom, 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 boom. Fight on, brother, a woman would add in the spirit of a good-natured amen. Bang, bang. Bullshit, bullshit, can't stand the game. White man's plan. One way out, one way out. Boom, 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 boom. In the corridor downstairs in the Alameda County Courthouse, there was a crush of lawyers and CBC correspondents and cameramen and people who wanted to visit Huey. Eldridge doesn't mind if I go up, one of the latter said to one of the lawyers. If Eldridge doesn't mind, it's all right with me, the lawyer said, if you've got press credentials. I've got kind of dubious credentials. I can't take you up then. Eldridge has got dubious credentials. One's bad enough. I've got a good working relationship up there. I don't want to blow it, the lawyer turned to a cameraman. You guys rolling yet? On that particular day, I was allowed to go up and a Los Angeles Times man and a radio newscaster. We all signed the police register and sat around a scarred pine table and waited for Huey Newton. The only thing that's going to free Huey Newton, Rap Brown had said recently at a Panther rally in Oakland Auditorium, is gunpowder. Huey Newton laid down his life for us, Stokely Carmichael had said the same night. But of course, Huey Newton had not yet laid down his life at all. He was just there in the Alameda County Jail waiting to be tried, and I wondered if the direction these rallies were taking ever made him uneasy, ever made him suspect that in many ways he was more useful to the revolution behind bars than on the street. He seemed, when he finally came in, an extremely likable young man, engaging, direct, and I did not get the sense that he had intended to become a political martyr. He smiled at us all and waited for his lawyer, Charles Gary, to set up a tape recorder, and he chatted softly with Eldridge Cleaver, who was then the Black Panther's Minister of Information. Huey Newton was still the Minister of Defense. 
Eldridge Cleaver wore a black sweater and one gold earring and spoke in an almost inaudible drawl and was allowed to see Huey Newton because he had those dubious credentials, a press card from Ramparts. Actually, his interest was in getting statements from Huey Newton, messages to take outside, in receiving a kind of prophecy to be interpreted as needed. We need a statement, Huey, about the 10-point program, Eldridge Cleaver said, so I'll ask you a question, see, and you answer it. How's Bobby, Huey Newton asked. He's got a hearing on his misdemeanor, see. I thought he had a felony. Well, that's another thing, the felony. He's also got a couple of misdemeanors. Once Charles Gary had set up the tape recorder, Huey Newton stopped chatting and started lecturing, almost without pause. He talked, running the words together because he had said them so many times before about the American capitalistic materialistic system and so-called free enterprise and the fight for the liberation of black people throughout the world. Every now and then, Eldridge Cleaver would signal Huey Newton and say something like, there are a lot of people interested in the executive mandate number three you've issued on the Black Panther Party. You would care to comment? And Huey Newton would comment, yes, mandate number three is this demand from the Black Panther Party speaking for the black community. Within the mandate, we admonish the racist police force. I kept wishing that he would talk about himself, hoping to break through the wall of rhetoric, but he seemed to be one of those autodidacts for whom all the things specific and personal present themselves as minefields to be avoided even at the cost of coherence, for whom safety lies in generalization. The newspaper man, the radio man, they tried. Question. Tell us something about yourself, Huey. I mean, your life before the Panthers. Answer. Before the Black Panther Party, my life was very similar to that of most black people in this country. Question. Well, your family, some incidents you remember, the influences that shaped you. Answer. Living in America shaped me. Question. Well, yes, but more specifically, answer. It reminds me of a quote from James Baldwin. To be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. To be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage, Eldridge Cleaver wrote in large letters on a pad of paper, and then he added, Huey P. Newton, quoting James Baldwin. I could see it emblazoned above the speaker's platforms at a rally, imprinted on the letterhead of an ad hoc committee still unborn. As a matter of fact, almost everything Huey Newton said had the ring of being a quotation, a pronouncement, to be employed when the need arose. I had heard Huey P. Newton on racism, the Black Panther Party is against racism. Huey P. Newton on cultural nationalism. The Black Panther Party believes that the only culture worth holding on to is revolutionary culture. Huey P. Newton on white radicalism, on police occupation of the ghetto, on the European versus the African. The European started to be sick when he denied his sexual nature. Huey Newton said, and Charles Gary interrupted then, bringing it back to first principles. Isn't it true, though, Huey, he said, that racism got its start for economic reasons? This weird interlocution seemed to take on a life of its own. The small room was hot, and the fluorescent light hurt my eyes, and I still did not know to what extent Huey Newton understood the nature of the role in which he was cast. As it happened, I had always appreciated the logic of the Panther position based as it was on the proposition that political power began at the end of the barrel of a gun. Exactly what gun had even been specified in an early memorandum from Huey P. Newton? Army 45, carbine, 12-gauge magnum shotgun with 18-inch barrel, preferably the brand of high standard, M16, 
.357 Magnum pistols, P38. And I could appreciate as well the particular beauty in Huey Newton as issue. In the politics of revolution, everyone was expendable, but I doubted that Huey Newton's political sophistication extended to seeing himself that way. The value of a Scottsboro case is easier to see if you're not yourself the Scottsboro boy. Is there anything else you want to ask Huey, Charles Gary asked. There did not seem to be. The lawyer adjusted his tape recorder. I've had a request, Huey, he said, from a high school student, a reporter on his school paper, and he wanted a statement from you, and he's going to call me tonight. Care to give me a message for him? Huey Newton regarded the microphone. There was a moment in which he seemed not to remember the name of the play, and then he brightened. I would like to point out, he said, his voice gaining volume as the memory discs clicked, high school, student, youth, message to youth that America is becoming a very young nation. Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, ended at the exact moment when word of the murders on Shalo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community, and in a sense, this was true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. In another sense, the 60s did not truly end for me until January of 1971, when I left the house on Franklin Avenue and moved to a house on the sea. This particular house on the sea had itself been very much a part of the 60s, and for some months after we took possession, I would come across souvenirs of that period in its history, a piece of Scientology literature beneath a drawer lining, a copy of Stranger in a Strange Land stuck deep on a closet shelf. But after a while, we did some construction, and between the power saws and the sea wind, the place got exorcised. I have known since then very little about the movements of the people who seemed to me emblematic of those years. I know, of course, that Eldridge Cleaver went to Algeria and came home an entrepreneur. I know that Jim Morrison died in Paris. I know that Linda Kasabian fled in search of the pastoral to New Hampshire, where I once visited her. She also visited me in New York, and we took our children on the Staten Island Ferry to see the Statue of Liberty. I also know that in 1975, Paul Ferguson, while serving a life sentence for the murder of Ramon Navarro, won first prize in a pen fiction contest and announced plans to continue my writing. Writing had helped him, he said, to reflect on experience and see what it means. Quite often I reflect on the big house in Hollywood, on midnight confessions, and on Ramon Navarro, and on the fact that Roman Polanski and I are godparents to the same child. But writing has not yet helped me to see what it means. That was Jill Eikenberry reading an excerpt of The White Album by Joan Didion. I'm Meg Wallitzer. As any reader goes through life, their collections of books inevitably get winnowed down, but the titles that survive all the moves and Marie Kondo-like bookshelf purges let you know that they matter. My copy of The White Album has made the cut several times in the four decades since I bought it. The book excited me so much when I first read it. A writer can do all that, I thought? Well, that writer could. She was often praised for the carefully crafted maxims in her writing. If you Google Didion quotes, you'll find dozens of examples that could be stitched like samplers and hung on the wall. Yet her deadpan wit is mentioned much less often. 
Fortunately, live audience reactions help us recognize just how funny Didion could be, even if it's often a kind of sophisticated gallows humor. When we return, Joan Didion remembers a blithe, youthful version of herself living in New York City. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I am so happy to be hosting the radio show and podcast, and I want to invite you, our loyal listeners, to be part of our Selected Shorts family by attending one of our shows. You, too, can be part of the magic of fiction, see the actors, and hear the gasps and laughter live in a theater near you. While most of our stories are recorded at our home theater of Symphony Space in New York City, every year we pack our bags and take the show on the road. We go coast to coast. This season, we're making stops in California, Colorado, Connecticut, upstate New York, New Jersey, Texas, and Washington State. One of our stops has to be in driving distance, right? Head to SelectedShorts.org for the latest tour dates and ticket information. Oh, and while you're there, subscribe to our podcast, where you'll also find bonus episodes and backstage conversations with actors who perform in the show. If you like what you hear, please write us a review and tell your friends how much you love Selected Shorts. In this hour, we remember the life and work of Joan Didion by revisiting two of her most famous essays. The second piece we'll hear comes from Didion's first major essay collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Goodbye to all that is Didion's farewell to New York City. On the surface, it's about falling out of love with a place. But it's also about letting go of the outsized expectations of youth without quite embracing the realities of adulthood. Sharing this transitive moment is a Broadway actor who's appeared in films including All Good Things and the new adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. This is Maya Dillon reading Joan Didion's Goodbye to All That. How many miles to Babylon? Three score miles and ten. Can I get there by candlelight? Yes, and back again. If your feet are nimble and light, you can get there by candlelight. It is easy to see the beginnings of things and harder to see the ends. I can remember now with a clarity that makes the nerves in the back of my neck constrict when New York began for me but I cannot lay my finger upon the moment it ended, can never cut through the ambiguities and second starts and broken resolves to the exact place on the page where the heroine is no longer as optimistic as she once was. When I first saw New York, I was 20, and it was summertime, and I got off a DC-7 at the old Idlewild temporary terminal in a new dress, which had seemed very smart in Sacramento but seemed less smart already, even in the old Idlewild temporary terminal. (laughs) And the warm air smelled of mildew, and some instinct programmed by all the movies I had ever seen, and all the songs I had ever heard sung, and all the stories I had ever read about New York, informed me 
that it would never be quite the same again. In fact, it never was. Sometime later, there was a song on all the jukeboxes on the Upper East Side that went, but where is the schoolgirl who used to be me? And if it was late enough at night, I used to wonder that. I know now that almost everyone wonders something like that sooner or later, and no matter what he or she is doing, but one of the mixed blessings of being 20 and 21 and even 23 is the conviction that nothing like this, all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, has ever happened to anyone before. <laughs> of course, it might have been some other city had circumstances been different, and the time been different, and had I been different. Might have been Paris, or Chicago, or even San Francisco. But because I am talking about myself, I am talking here about New York. That first night, I opened my window on the bus into town and watched for the skyline. But all I could see were the wastes of Queens and the big signs that said, Midtown Tunnel, this lane, and then a flood of summer rain. Even that seemed remarkable and exotic, for I had come out of the West where there was no summer rain. And for the next three days, I sat wrapped in blankets in a hotel room, air-conditioned to 35 degrees, and tried to get over a bad cold and a high fever. It did not occur to me to call a doctor because I knew none. And although it did occur to me to call the desk and ask that the air conditioner be turned off, I never called because I did not know how much to tip whoever might come. <laughs> Was anyone ever so young? I am here to tell you that someone was. All I could do during those three days was talk long distance to the boy I already knew I would never marry in the spring. I would stay in New York, I told him, just six months, and I could see the Brooklyn Bridge from my window. As it turned out, the bridge was the Triborough. <laughs> and I stayed eight years. In retrospect, it seems to me that those days, before I knew the names of all the bridges, were happier than the ones that came later. But perhaps you will see that as we go along. Part of what I want to tell you is what it is like to be young in New York. How six months can become eight years with the deceptive ease of a film dissolve. For that is how those years appear to me now in a long sequence of sentimental dissolves and old-fashioned trick shots. The Seagram building fountains dissolve into snowflakes. I enter a revolving door at 20 and come out a good deal older and on a different street. But most particularly, I want to explain to you, and in the process, perhaps, to myself, why I no longer live in New York. It is often said that New York is a city for only the very rich, and the very poor, it is less often said that New York is also, at least for those of us who came there from somewhere else, a city for only the very young. I remember once, one cold, bright December evening in New York, suggesting to a friend who complained of having been around too long that he come with me to a party where there would be, I assured him with the bright resourcefulness of 23, new faces 
He laughed, literally, until he choked, and I had to roll down the taxi window and hit him on the back. New faces, he said finally. Don't tell me about new faces. It seemed that the last time he had gone to a party where he had been promised new faces, there had been 15 people in the room, and he had already slept with five of the women and owed money to all but two of the men. (laughs) I laughed with him, but the first snow had just begun to fall and the big Christmas trees glittered yellow and white as far as I could see up Park Avenue, and I had a new dress, and it would be a long while before I would come to understand the particular moral of that story. It would be a long while because, quite simply, I was in love with New York. I do not mean love in any colloquial way. I mean... I was in love with the city, the way you love the first person who ever touches you and never love anyone quite that way again. I remember walking across 62nd Street one twilight that first spring or the second spring. They were all alike for a while. I was late to meet someone, but I stopped at Lexington Avenue and bought a peach and stood on the corner eating it and knew that I had come out of the West and reached the mirage. I could taste the peach and feel the soft air blowing from a subway grating on my legs and I could smell lilac and garbage (laughs) and expensive perfume. And I knew that it would cost something sooner or later because I did not belong there, did not come from there. But when you are 22 or 23, you figure that later you will have a high emotional balance and be able to pay whatever it costs. I still believed in possibilities then, still had the sense, so peculiar to New York, that something extraordinary would happen any minute, any day, any month. I was making only 65 or $70 a week then, Put yourself in Hattie Carnegie's hands, I was advised, without the slightest trace of irony by an editor of the magazine for which I worked. So little money that some weeks I had to charge food at Bloomingdale's gourmet shop in order to eat. (laughs) A fact which went unmentioned in the letters I wrote to California. I never told my father that I needed money because then he would have sent it. And then I would never know if I could do it by myself. At that time, making a living seemed a game to me with arbitrary but quite inflexible rules. And except on a certain kind of wintry evening, 6.30 in the 70s, say, already dark and bitter with a wind off the river, when I would be walking very fast toward a bus and would look in the bright windows of brownstones and see cooks working in clean kitchens and imagine women lighting candles on the floor above and beautiful children being bathed on the floor above that, Except on nights like those, I never felt poor. I had the feeling that if I needed money, I could always get it. I could write a syndicated column for teenagers under the name Debbie Lynn. Or I could smuggle gold into India. Or I could become a $100 call girl. And none of it would matter. Nothing was irrevocable. Everything was within reach. Just around every corner lay something curious and interesting, something I had never seen before or done or known about. 
I could go to a party and meet someone who called himself Mr. Emotional Appeal and ran the Emotional Appeal Institute for Tina Onassis Blanford. <laughs> or a Florida cracker who was then a regular on what he called the Big C, the Southampton-El Morocco circuit. I'm well connected on the Big C, honey, he would tell me over collard greens on his vast borrowed terrace or the widow of the celery king of the Harlem market, or a piano salesman from Bon Terre, Missouri, or someone who had already made and lost two fortunes in Midland, Texas. I could make promises to myself and to other people, and there would be all the time in the world to keep them. I could stay up all night and make mistakes, and none of it would count. You see, I was in a curious position in New York. It never occurred to me that I was living a real life there. In my imagination, I was always there for just another few months, just until Easter or Christmas or the first warm day in May. For that reason, I was most comfortable in the company of Southerners. They seemed to be in New York as I was, on some indefinitely extended leave from wherever they belonged, disciplined to consider the future, temporary exiles, who always knew when the flights left for New Orleans or Memphis or Richmond or, in my case, California. Someone who lives always with a plane schedule in the drawer lives on a slightly different calendar. Christmas, for example, was a difficult season. Other people could take it in stride, going to Stowe or going abroad or going for the day to their mother's places in Connecticut. Those of us who believed that we lived somewhere else would spend it making and canceling airline reservations, waiting for weather-bound flights as if for the last plane out of Lisbon in 1940, and finally comforting one another, those of us who were left, with the oranges and mementos and smoked oyster stuffings of childhood gathering close colonials in a far country, which is precisely what we were. I am not sure that it is possible for anyone brought up in the East to appreciate entirely what New York, the idea of New York, means to those of us who came out of the West and the South. To an Eastern child, particularly a child who has always had an uncle on Wall Street and who has spent several hundred Saturdays first at FAO Schwartz and being fitted for shoes at bests and then waiting under the Biltmore clock and dancing to Lester Lannan New York is just a city, albeit the city, a plausible place for people to live. But to those of us who came from places where no one had heard of Lester Lannan, and Grand Central Station was a Saturday radio program, where Wall Street and Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue were not places at all, but abstractions, money and high fashion and the hucksters, New York was no mere city. It was instead an infinitely romantic notion, the mysterious nexus of all love and money and power, the shining and perishable dream itself. To think of living there was to reduce the miraculous to the mundane. One does not live at Xanadu. In fact, it was difficult in the extreme for me to understand those young women for whom New York was not simply an ephemeral estoril, but a real place, 
girls who bought toasters and installed new cabinets in their apartments and committed themselves to some reasonable future. I never bought any furniture in New York. <laughs> For a year or so, I lived in other people's apartments. After that, I lived in the 90s in an apartment furnished entirely with things taken from storage by a friend whose wife had moved away. And when I left the apartment in the 90s, that was when I was leaving everything, when it was all breaking up. I left everything in it, even my winter clothes and the map of Sacramento County I had hung on the bedroom wall to remind me who I was. And I moved into a monastic four-room floor through on 75th Street. Monastic is perhaps misleading here, implying some chic severity. Until after I was married and my husband moved some furniture in, there was nothing at all in those four rooms except a cheap double mattress and box springs ordered by telephone the day I decided to move, and two French garden chairs lent me by a friend who imported them. It strikes me now that the people I knew in New York all had curious and self-defeating sidelines. They imported garden chairs, which did not sell very well at Hammaker Schlemmer, or they tried to market hair straighteners in Harlem, or they ghosted exposés of Murder Incorporated for Sunday supplements. I think that perhaps none of us was very serious, engagé only about our most private lives. All I ever did to that apartment was hang 50 yards of yellow theatrical silk across the bedroom windows because I had some idea that the gold light would make me feel better. But I did not bother to weight the curtains correctly, and all that summer the long panels of transparent golden silk would blow out the windows and get tangled and drenched in the afternoon thunderstorms. That was the year, my 28th, when I was discovering that not all of the promises would be kept, that some things are, in fact, irrevocable, and that it had counted after all. Every evasion and every procrastination, every mistake, every word, all of it. That is what it was all about, wasn't it? Promises. Now when New York comes back to me, it comes in hallucinatory flashes so clinically detailed that I sometimes wish that memory would affect the distortion with which it is commonly credited. For a lot of the time I was in New York, I used a perfume called Fleur de Roquel, and then L'Air de Temps, and now the slightest trace of either can short-circuit my connections for the rest of the day. Nor can I smell Henri Bendel's jasmine soap without falling back into the past, or the particular mixture of spices used for boiling crabs. There were barrels of crab boil in a Czech place in the 80s where I once shopped. Smells, of course, are notorious memory stimuli, but there are other things which affect me the same way. Blue and white striped sheets, vermouth cassis, some faded nightgowns, which were new in 1959 or 1960, and some chiffon scarves I bought about the same time. 
I suppose that a lot of us who have been young in New York have the same scenes on our home screens. I remember sitting in a lot of apartments with a slight headache about five o'clock in the morning. I had a friend who could not sleep, and he knew a few other people who had the same problem, and we would watch the sky lighten and have a last drink with no ice and then go home in the early morning light when the streets were clean and wet. Had it rained in the night? We never knew. And the few cruising taxis still had their headlights on, and the only color was the red and green of traffic signals. The white rose bars opened very early in the morning. I recall waiting in one of them to watch an astronaut go into space, waiting so long that at the moment it actually happened, I had my eyes not on the television screen, but on a cockroach on the tile floor. I liked the bleak branches above Washington Square at dawn and the monochromatic flatness of Second Avenue, the fire escapes and the grilled storefronts, peculiar and empty in their perspective. It is relatively hard to fight at 6.30 or 7 in the morning without any sleep, which was perhaps one reason we stayed up all night. And it seemed to me a pleasant time of day. The windows were shuttered in that apartment in the 90s, and I could sleep a few hours and then go to work. I could work then on two or three hours sleep and a container of coffee from chock full of nuts. I liked going to work, liked the soothing and satisfactory rhythm of getting out a magazine, liked the orderly progression of four color closings and then two color closings and black and white closings and then the product. No abstraction, but something which looked effortlessly glossy and could be picked up on a newsstand and weighed in the hand. I liked all the minutiae of proofs and layouts. Liked working late on the nights when the magazine went to press, sitting and reading variety and waiting for the copy desk to call. From my office, I could look across town to the weather signal on the Mutual of New York building and the lights that alternately spelled out time and life above Rockefeller Plaza. That pleased me obscurely. And so did walking uptown in the mauve eight o'clocks of early summer evenings and looking at things, low stuffed tureens in 57th Street windows, people in evening clothes trying to get taxis, the trees just coming into full leaf, the lambent air, all the sweet promises of money and summer. Some years passed but I still did not lose that sense of wonder about New York. I began to cherish the loneliness of it, the sense that at any given time, no one need know where I was or what I was doing. I liked walking from the East River over to the Hudson and back on brisk days, down around the village on warm days. A friend would leave me the key to her apartment in the West Village when she was out of town. And sometimes I would just move down there because by that time, the telephone was beginning to bother me. The canker, you see, was already in the rose, and not many people had that number. I remember one day when someone who did have the West Village number came to pick me up for lunch there, and we both had hangovers. And I cut my finger opening him a beer and burst into tears. And we walked to a Spanish restaurant and drank Bloody Marys and gazpacho until we felt better. I was not then guilt-ridden about spending afternoons that way because I still had all the afternoons in the world.
And even late in the game, I still liked going to parties. All parties, bad parties, Saturday afternoon parties given by recently married couples who lived in Stuyvesant Town. <laughs> West side parties given by unpublished or failed writers who served cheap red wine and talked about going to Guadalajara. Village parties where all the guests worked for advertising agencies and voted for reform Democrats. Press parties at Sardi's, the worst kinds of parties. You will have perceived by now that I was not one to profit by the experience of others, that it was a very long time indeed before I stopped believing in new faces and began to understand the lesson in that story, which was that it is distinctly possible to stay too long at the fair. I could not tell you when I began to understand that. All I know is that it was very bad when I was 28. Everything that was said to me I seemed to have heard before, and I could no longer listen. I could no longer listen, sitting in little bars near Grand Central, and listen to someone complaining of his wife's inability to cope with a help while he missed another train to Connecticut. I no longer had any interest in hearing about the advances other people had received from their publishers, about plays which were having second-act trouble in Philadelphia, or about people I would like very much if only I would come out and meet them. I had already met them, always. There were certain parts of the city which I had to avoid. I could not bear Upper Madison Avenue on weekday mornings. This was a particularly inconvenient aversion since I then lived just 50 or 60 feet east of Madison. Because I would see women walking Yorkshire Terriers and shopping at Gristides and some Veblenesque gorge would rise in my throat. I could not go to Times Square in the afternoon or to the New York Public Library for any reason whatsoever. One day I could not go into a Shrafts. The next day it would be Bonwit Teller. I hurt the people I cared about and insulted those I did not. I cut myself off from the one person who was closer to me than any other. I cried until I was not even aware when I was crying and when I was not. Cried in elevators and in taxis and in Chinese laundries. And when I went to the doctor, he said only that I seemed to be depressed and should see a specialist. He wrote down a psychiatrist's name and address for me, but I did not go. Instead, I got married, <laughs> which as it turned out was a very good thing to do, but badly timed since I still could not walk on Upper Madison Avenue in the morning and still could not talk to people and still cried in Chinese laundries. I had never before understood what despair meant. And I'm not sure that I understand now, but I understood that year. Of course, I could not work. I could not even get dinner with any degree of certainty, and I would sit in the apartment on 75th Street, paralyzed, until my husband would call from his office and say gently that I did not have to get dinner, that I could meet him at Michael's Pub or at Toot Shores or at Sardi's East. And then one morning in April, we had been married in January. He called and told me that he wanted to get out of New York for a while, that he would take a six-month leave of absence, that we could go somewhere. It was three years ago that he told me that, and we have lived in Los Angeles since.
Many of the people we knew in New York think this is a curious aberration, and in fact tell us so. There is no possible, no adequate answer to that, and so we give certain stock answers, the answers everyone gives. I talk about how difficult it would be for us to afford to live in New York right now, about how much space we need. All I mean is that I was very young in New York, and that at some point the golden rhythm was broken, and I am not that young anymore. The last time I was in New York was in a cold January, and everyone was ill and tired. Many of the people I used to know there had moved to Dallas, or had gone on antabuse, or had bought a farm in New Hampshire. We stayed ten days, and then we took an afternoon flight back to Los Angeles. And on the way home from the airport that night, I could see the moon on the Pacific, and smell jasmine all around. And we both knew that there was no longer any point in keeping the apartment we still kept in New York. There were years when I called Los Angeles the coast. But they seem a long time ago. That was Maya Dillon reading Goodbye to All That by Joan Didion. The pieces we heard this hour are two of Didion's most famous early essays, just a taste of the work she produced over her long life. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.